This is the City AM London Mayoral Hustings, recorded on April the 12th at the Institute of Directors. The chair is City AM editor Christian May. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to the City AM debate. Thank you very much for joining us, and indeed, well done. Um, we had, in the sort of six hours that the uh, online form was available for registrations, just under 1,000 applicants from among our own readership to come along this evening. Um, so I hope that you will find it uh, an extremely uh, illuminating and stimulating uh, exchange of ideas. Um, we will be looking for uh, a bit of heat and a bit of light in equal measure. The candidates know the rules. I will pose some questions. Each candidate will be invited to answer it in turn. Um, there will then be an opportunity for a formal response, but also we're looking for, of course, for some sparky exchanges. So without further ado, please welcome the candidates for this evening's debate the Conservative MP for Richmond, Zach Goldsmith, and the Labour candidate and MP for Tooting, Sadiq Khan. Hi, how are you doing? This is you here. Right, by virtue of the toss of a coin, the Labour candidate, Sadiq Khan, will be first uh, with the opening statement. Sadiq Khan. Good evening. It's uh, great to be back here at the uh, IOD. Can I, Christian, begin by thanking CDM for hosting tonight's uh, hustings. London is the greatest city in the world, but we're at a crossroads. The next generation are missing out on the opportunities that our city gave to me. To go from a council estate to helping run a successful business, to standing here before you today running to be the Mayor of London. Above all else, the housing crisis means that for someone who wants to bring up a young family or simply aspires to own their own home, London is becoming too expensive. Add to that the soaring cost of transport we've seen fares go through the roof. Londoners are being priced out of our own city and something needs to change. I'll be a mayor for all Londoners, giving all those who live and work in our city the chances to succeed that I had. I know we can't create opportunity without sustaining and growing prosperity. So let me be clear. I'll be the most pro-business mayor London has ever had. Central to this will be a new business advisory board made up of experts, not of political allies, to provide me with guidance and insight. I'll set up Skills for Londoners, inviting businesses to join me in a new partnership dedicated to ensuring that we skill up today's Londoners for the jobs of tomorrow. And I'll be a champion for London at home and abroad, working to attract investment and defending our interests in Westminster and Brussels. Speaking of which, the EU referendum will take place just six weeks after this mayoral election, and it will define the future of our city. We cannot afford to put our competitiveness, growth, or indeed our security at risk. And as mayor, I lead from the front in the campaign to stay in the European Union. Above all, 
London needs a mayor with a positive vision for our city's future. I won't lie, I've been disappointed by the tone of the campaign run on behalf of my opponent. It's been negative, it's been divisive. I'll continue to be an advocate for the best of London. A mayor who can unite our city, not divide it. A mayor to fulfil the potential of Londoners. A mayor for all Londoners. Thank you. Thank you. Zach Goldsmith. Thank you very much indeed, Christian. Thank you all for being here tonight. I'm here to talk tonight about how my action plan for Greater London will benefit London's businesses. But before I do that, I hope you'll forgive me for addressing what I think is a really important point. In recent days, Sadiq Khan and his supporters have accused my campaign of being Islamophobic. Uh, yesterday, Sadiq tweeted me directly saying, there is no need to keep pointing at me and shouting, he's a Muslim. Sadiq, I have never referred to you or your, by your religion. That has simply never happened. To suggest otherwise is wrong and it is offensive. Faith is irrelevant to anyone's ability to do this job. But there are serious questions about you and your judgment. Your letter to The Guardian in the wake of 7-7 blaming terrorism on British government policy. Your choice to defend. Your choice to defend one of the self-confessed 9-11 terrorists. Your choice to take on the British government to overturn a ban against the hate preacher Louis Farrakhan. Your step-by-step -step legal guide on how to sue the metropolitan police that you now want to lead. Your decision to share a platform with an extremist who called for Jews to be drowned in the ocean and who threatened fire throughout the world. And then to dismiss that preacher's words as mere flowery language. These are some, just some of the things that you chose to do. These are facts, not smears, and it is right that you are being scrutinized because you are standing to be mayor of London, mayor of the greatest city in the world. Now, you shout Islamophobia to close those questions down, but this is nothing to do with Islam, nor is anyone suggesting, Sadiq, that you have extreme views. This is very simply about your judgment. Now, I'm going to talk about the issue that we are here to discuss uh, London is the greatest city in the world, and it is the most important city in the world. And I think Boris Johnson can take a lot of credit for that. He put London back on the map, despite being elected during difficult times in 2008. We excel now in almost every field of human endeavor. But we face serious challenges, so I am standing for mayor to protect that success and to make it work for all Londoners. My action plan for Greater London will deliver more homes, better transport, safer streets, a cleaner living environment, and I will do it without putting a penny on council tax. My plan matters as much for businesses as it does to all Londoners. But there is more to do to protect the businesses that underpin our economy and provide the employment and the growth that we need. So here's what I'll do for, for London's job creators. I'll set up broadband for London to make superfast broadband our fourth utility. I'll use devolved business rates to support our high streets and our SMEs. I'll make affordable office space. I'll ensure that affordable office space is built into major new developments. Further education funding is soon to be devolved to the mayor and to local authorities. I want to devolve it again to businesses and local authorities working together to match training with the real jobs in the cutting edge industries like clean tech or the creative sector. I can see I'm running out of time. My plan is delivered by working with government, securing the best possible deal from 
government, and that matters because London depends on central government. And my record as a working MP shows that when I make a promise, I keep it. When I say I'm going to deliver, I deliver. And that's why at the last election, I was rewarded with the biggest increased majority of any sitting MP in the country. I want to do the same for London. Thank you. Thank you, Zach Elson. I think, um, I think, ladies and gentlemen, before we move on, before we move on to some um, specific matters of policy, I'll give uh, a couple more minutes on, on the debate. And obviously, uh, Zach, you wanted to, to respond to some allegations that have been made about the nature and tone of your campaign. Yeah. Um, Sadiq Khan, do you want to respond to anything that Zach has just said? Well, look, I mean, Zach spent three of his three minutes talking about me, and added, you had another two minutes to him because he ran out of uh, time. Look, the, the reality is, look, Christian, I'm the only candidate here who, when he stood for Parliament, had extremists outside the mosque protesting about him running for Parliament because I would be, quote-unquote, making man-made law. I was called an apostate because I had the audacity to run to be a Member of Parliament. I'm the person who had a fatwa put out against me because I had the audacity to do what I've been doing all my life, fighting inequality and injustice, by voting for same-sex marriage. I've been fighting extremism all my uh, adult life. There must be a reason uh, why I was the minister going to weekly security meetings chaired by the Home Secretary in government. There must be a reason why one of us uh, has, uh, is a Privy Councillor and has confidence and be briefed in Privy Councillor terms and not the other. But look, the point is this, Christian. There is a very good reason why Zach is spending all his time talking about me and issues that are both negative and divisive because this man has no vision for our city. And it's with, it's with disappointment that I say this because he is a good man. Uh, before uh, Linton Crosby's team took over his campaign, he had exciting ideas. He was fizzing with ideas. They've been drowned up by this negative, divisive campaign. Zach, listen, you should know better. Sadiq, do you think, let me ask you, do you think, do you think that those and many of the other examples that have been printed in the press, most of which were news to me when I read them, do you think those are not legitimate questions to us? Do you think the press are engaging in Islamophobia by asking about those links, by asking about those platforms you shared, by asking about your having defended people with the most extraordinary uh, abhorrent views? The fact that you employed a member of staff until just a few weeks ago with extreme views, a man who believed that the Lee Rigby murder was fabricated. Is it Islamophobic of the press, of London, and yes, my campaign to ask those questions because that's what you've been talking to saying to the newspapers today. The short answer is that I don't think you're racist, nor do I think you're Islamophobic, nor do I think the press are Islamophobic. Are they legitimate or questions? racist? Do you think do you think that Yvette Cooper was accurate you're today to point out that what she thought there were racist screams coming from the Goldsmiths campaign? Is there any evidence of that? Christian, just like Zach is entitled to his view and to run the campaign he wants, so is Yvette Cooper. The point is this: we should be having this. Twenty-two days left to go. An idea of ide a battle of ideas. We should be debating the policies about uh, our vision for this city. But uh, and I'm doing that, and I've been doing it for the last uh, four or five months, and responding to the allegations that Zach's team wants to make. I'm the guy talking about addressing the housing crisis. Okay. I'm the guy with a plan to make a modern, so, a, a so transport system modern and affordable. I'm the guy talking about the importance of us remaining in the European Union. I'm the person, by the way, whose campaign has Muslims, Jews, okay. Christians, Sikhs. Buddhists, those who want to know of an organised faith, rich, uh, poor, uh, old, young, 
gay, lesbian, we even have people from Yorkshire supporting my campaign. There may well be some people from Yorkshire in the audience today, and I'm sure that they, like you, want to get on now with some right. policy debate. We may well return to these issues. You will have an opportunity to uh, ask questions yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll get to that in the next half hour or so. So, without further ado, let's get into one of the most substantive policy debates of our time at the moment. It's also one of the most binary choices facing not just the two candidates, but all of us um, in the weeks ahead, and that is about uh, Britain's membership of the European Union one of the most pressing issues. So uh, my question, and I'll come to you first, uh, Zach Goldsmith, is should Britain vote to leave the European Union? And if it does, how would London benefit or suffer? Thank you very much. I've got to answer that in two... I've lost my mic. That's um, right, it's a backup mic. Okay. You, got one I have there. to answer that question in two ways. The first is to say that I'm campaigning solely and in, entirely and only on the election, on the choice that we face on May the 5th. And the reason for that is that I believe the biggest risk to London is not whether we come out of Europe or whether we stay in Europe. The biggest risk to London is if London and Londoners embrace an agenda which will take us a giant step backwards. So that is all I'm doing. As an individual, as one of the 48 million people who are going to be voting on this extraordinarily important uh, issue, I will be voting for Brexit. And I'll be voting for Brexit because I believe that we have a brighter future outside of Europe. London prospers. London is a successful city. London is the most important city in the world, not because it is on the edge of Europe, not because it's part of the European Union, but because it is a global city with a global outlook, a legal system that people trust, a language that people understand, and it's underpinned by a parliamentary democracy in which most people, at least, have confidence. I'm going to have to make one final point, and that is that it is not the job of the next mayor. This is not a mayoral policy. It is not the job of the next mayor to take us out of Europe or to keep us in Europe. The job of the next mayor is to make work whatever decision is made by the British people in this extraordinarily important referendum. And I believe that if we choose to stay in, then we can make it work. We can stop grumbling. We can get more involved and more enthusiastic about Europe. If we vote to come out, then I believe we have a bright and glorious and wonderful future outside for all the reasons I've already described. Sadiq Khan, Brexit. What's at stake for London? Well, the, the mayor of London isn't any old citizen. He or she is the leader of our city, and he or she should be leading a campaign, whatever he believes in, from the front rather than uh, being on the sidelines and watching what goes on. Look, put aside the cultural benefits, put aside the social benefits, there are huge security benefits. The economic benefits of us being a member of the European Union are huge. It's not possible to be the most pro-business mayor London has ever seen and not be in favour of us remaining in the European Union. Independent experts say more than half a million jobs in London directly dependent on us being members of the European Union. 60% of the world's leading companies have their EU headquarters here in London. Think of Sony, think of AIG Insurance, think of China Telecom. There are more than half of our exports go to the European Union, 12.3 billion pounds. The idea that the mayor of London would you know, cross his arms and stay silent for six weeks is absurd. Why take a risk with jobs? Why take a risk with growth? Why take a risk with our prosperity? And by the way, of those jobs, 85% uh, in the financial sector, directly dependent on us being members of the European Union, 80% in manufacturing, 70,000 uh, in science and tech. I'll be a man not simply making sure those jobs stay in London, but also I have a plan to make sure more jobs come to our great city. 
You can respond to that, Zach. Yeah, to simply to say that it is not a black and white issue. And no one can pretend that there is a risk-free option on the ballot paper on June the 23rd. It's not a choice between the status quo and coming out and forging our own way. There is no status quo. Europe is moving rapidly in a direction. We know that the Eurozone has to look and behave and become more and more like a single unit, a single country, a country which we will not be part of. So by choosing to stay in, we're not choosing the status quo. We're choosing to be on the edge of something over which we will have even less control. And the business world speaks in two voices on this issue, just as my party does, just as I expect most people in this room do. The Federation of Small Business polled their members recently, a majority were either indifferent to the issue or they believe that we'd be better off out. And any number of voices from the city who believe that we will either, it'll either make no difference to their businesses or it will be good for them. Just yesterday, moving out of the city of London, just yesterday, I was with Tate and Lyle, one of our oldest and most established businesses, a business that believes that it and its 890 employees will go out of business because of the European Union, a company which was passionately in favor of reforming the European Union, but believes that the reforms that have been brought back by the government are not enough and who are now going to be voting to come out. Business does not speak with one voice on this issue. It is vastly more complex than that. Sadiq, Zach says that remaining is not a risk-free option either. Well, look, I mean, we have uh, a GDP in the European Union bigger than China, bigger than the United States of America. We have a market of 500 million potential customers. Why take a risk? 60% of IOD members believe that we should remain in the European Union. I accept, as a country, as a city, we can survive outside the European Union. Of course we can. Why take a risk with our jobs? Why take a risk with uh, prosperity? Why take a risk with a worldwide company having its EU headquarters in a city other than London? You know, our competition is not simply Berlin or Paris. Our competition uh, is in the emerging cities in China and India. The 10 fastest growing cities in the world by population are all in China. Is it more likely or less likely those companies will invest in London if we're inside or outside the European Union? Why take that risk? That's aside from the huge benefits to the cultural life of London, the huge benefits to the social life of uh, London, the huge benefits to our security. The amount of intelligence we share with our European partners is huge. I know this as somebody who's actually had a job in government as a transport minister, airport security, exchanging flight information, exchanging criminal records with our European uh, partners, extradition on a fast basis with one of our European partners. Why take a risk? Zach, I want to ask you about the Prime Minister's renegotiation. I don't know if you were on the fence before that, but clearly, despite the fact that, that your party considers that renegotiation to have been a triumph, um, you're clearly not impressed by it. It did nothing for you. I... I'm going to answer the point about security, and I will, I'm not swerving your question. I, do, I, I just think it is so odd to make the security case for the European Union when the closest intelligence relationships we have are not with the European Union or members of the European Union. They're with Canada, with New Zealand, with Australia, with the United States. We don't need to become a single merged nation in order to share vital pieces of information on an issue in which we all have an absolute mutual uh, and, and essential and direct interest. It's just a sort of nonsense argument. Um, in terms of the Prime Minister reforms, I, I salute the Prime Minister 
for having delivered this referendum. I remember before the election, the number of people who came up to me, including in my own constituency, said, you know, we can't believe your Conservative Party. We can't believe that David Cameron. He's going to get elected and he's going to go back on this promise. Well, he didn't. He's delivered a referendum. It's the first time anyone will be able to have a direct say on this issue since 1975, the year I was born. You have to be 59 in order to have had your say on the European Union. And what you chose back in 1975 was very different to what is on offer today. So I salute him for that, and I urge and encourage anyone who is on the Brexit camp to remember every day between now and the election that we are only having this debate because the Prime Minister kept his promise. For my part, despite all the admiration I have for him for what he's achieved, I don't believe the reforms have gone far enough. I don't believe they do enough to restore democratic accountability. I believe that people who make decisions on our behalf should feel the pressure of democracy, and that is not the case with the European Union. I suspect that if I were to do a poll in this room and ask you to put your hands up if you know the name of your MEP, I'd be surprised even in a room packed with talent like this if more than 15 or 20 hands went up. I'm tempted to do it, but you're the chair, so I'll let you decide. But the fact is that it is not a democratic institution. It is not an institution whose decision makers are held to account by voters in a democracy. And that is a problem. And I, I was hoping for a more dramatic decentralization. I was hoping for subsidiarity, decisions being taken at the lowest possible level. And unfortunately, that is not what is on offer. Can we have a show of hands on this uh, important matter? There may well be undecideds, but all those who are in favor of remaining in the European Union, please raise your hands, provide a bit of context. And those who would like to vote for a Brexit, raise your hands. So, you know, there may be taking into account some undecideds. It could be pretty split. Um, how important was the Prime Minister's renegotiation to you? <laughs> You're a very tribal man, Christian. Uh, look, uh, I mean, it, uh, the Prime Minister tried to uh, negotiate uh, the best deal for our country. Uh, some would argue he could have gone, he could have gone further. Um, changes to in-work benefits, encouraging. The red car system is, is encouraging. Protecting the city of London was important. But, you know, look, the negotiations are done now. We are where we are. My point is this. If, as a member of the European Union, the criticism is that the Prime Minister can't negotiate a great deal for our country, how much more effective will a Prime Minister be outside of the European Union negotiating bilaterally with each, with each one of these uh, countries? And my point is this. Who can answer how long each negotiation will take? Who can answer if it will be better or worse than what it is now? Who can answer the consequences for those non-EU companies who currently invest in London? Who can answer in relation to the financial sector who are competing not simply with New York, uh, and not simply with Frankfurt, not simply with uh, Berlin, but Tokyo and other parts of the world? Why take that risk? And if you're a, a pro-business mayor who wants to bring jobs into our city, who wants to skill up, today's Londoners have the jobs of tomorrow in finance, in fintech, in tech, in science, in low-carbon manufacturing, why take the risk with our future? OK, gentlemen, we're going to move on. Um, a lot of your observations about the debate on Brexit is, of course, quite rightly and understandably focused on uh, London and, and the implications for London's economy. And it's London's economy that I'd like to turn to now. Um, London has just retained its status as the number one city uh, in the Global Financial Centres Index. This is uh, produced every six months. London in that index beats New York, it be beats Singapore, it uh, beats Hong Kong, and the index is, uh, it measures everything from, from uh, human capital through to, product, uh, through to infrastructure, um, all sorts of other factors, business environment in particular. Um, that is the positive, but we do have to take into account that all is not rosy, all is not well. There are concerns about sluggish growth, concerns about productivity, and those are going to hit the capital 
just as hard. Um, so my question, and Sadiq Khan, I'll ask you to, to answer this first, is how you would use the powers and indeed the office of the mayor to protect uh, and to grow London's economy? Well, firstly, you, you'll, you'll be surprised for me to say this, but I think Boris Johnson has done a good job being an advocate for our city overseas. The trade missions that he's led have been excellent. Uh, I will build on those. I, I will not, uh, this is a promise, I will not during the course of those trade missions almost kill a 10-year-old trying to score a try. Uh, but but, but they, are, they are important for uh, us as a, uh, a beacon for the rest of the world, as a, as a leading financial global centre. Part of that, when you speak to the chief executives of FTSE 100 companies, when you speak to senior people in some of the companies who have their base in London, they're worried about the impact of housing on their ability to recruit uh, and uh, retain talent. We've now got you know, graduate training schemes where the cost of housing is included in the packages they're running, interest-free deposits for renting or for purchasing properties. We've got to skill up Londoners. Uh, one of the things I've nicked from Bill de Blasio in New York is he's got a New York task force training up today's youngsters for the jobs of tomorrow, a tech talent pipeline. I want Londoners to have the skills to get the jobs that we're creating in London. I don't create the jobs. The mayor doesn't create the jobs. What he or she does is create the circumstances in which jobs are uh, being um, created. Skills for Londoners will do what it sells, says on the tin. Training up today's youngsters to have the skills for tomorrow. We've got to think about having uh, the right sort of um, views in relation to tech. I want uh, broadband to be a fourth public utility. I will have the city's first ever chief digital officer in City Hall, an idea of Nick uh, from the mayors in New York, have chief uh, digital officers in City Hall working with businesses to make sure they grow and expand, but make sure they're fit for, for the 21st uh, uh, century. Final point in relation to the importance of us remaining a leading global commercial centre. Why take a risk and leave the European Union? Why take a risk? Zach Goldsmith. Thank you very much. I mean, the first thing I have to say is that, that it's about the humdrum, the mundane. It's about solving the housing crisis. If people are priced out of their own city, if they can't afford to live in the place in which they work, then London will cease to be the most important city in the world. So that is the first job of the next mayor. Not the first responsibility, but it is the first job. You don't get those homes without growing the transport network. Uh, there's no way to unlock the land that we're going to need to deliver those homes without growing the transport network. Crossrail 2 alone is going to uh, facilitate the building of around 200,000 homes. Sutton Tramling, cost about £200 million, will facilitate 20,000 homes. The extension of the overground to Barking Riverside, 26,000 homes. So it is about infrastructure. It is about housing. And it's about the soft infrastructure as well. We've done incredibly well under Boris in terms of investment in our transport network. We have never seen that level of investment other than back in the Victorian era. However, despite that, in digital terms, we are miles behind. Of the top 33 cities in Europe, we are number 26. That is a problem that can be solved very easily using the Transport for London network, 560 kilometres of tunnels, of tubes and so on, which we can use to create, to, 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 to lay out a broadband for London. I think we're going to have to do that and it's going to be a priority. It's the first <coughs> announcement I made as a mayoral candidate. The skills funding, it's not something that's spoken about in most hustings, but one of the most exciting things that's going to happen in the next four years, in the term of the next mayor, is devolution of the adult skills funding, about £400 million. That gives us the opportunity 
opportunity, rather than having a one-size-fits-all British approach, we could have a bespoke approach. And I would like that devolution to leapfrog the mayor and go to local authorities working with businesses to train people up for the jobs that actually exist. If you're in Croydon, for example, there is an emerging, very exciting tech cluster. There are jobs that are there for the taking. Rather than always seeking to import labor, it's worth, I think, prioritizing training up and skilling up people in London who will benefit from those jobs. That is something that we absolutely have to do. But as, a, as mayor, you also have soft power. There's a platform from which you can lobby government and bang the drum around the world. Boris has shown how to bang the drum around the world. That's an opportunity I relish. I look forward to being able to do that. But here in the UK, here in Westminster, the, the mayor needs to continue to put pressure on the government to provide as competitive a tax regime as it is possible to do. Now, this government is making progress. We're seeing, we've seen corporation tax cut. We'll see it cut again. We're, the, the direction of travel is, is correct. It's right that the mayor needs to continue to apply pressure. Sadiq Khan, you may have heard some good ideas in that. Uh, you're welcome to respond to them now. Sure. I mean, there's one school of thought that says the only way a city can do well is if the mayor is from the same party as the government. But if you believe that, why have elections for mayor? Why not the government simply appoint the person who, he, who they believe should be the mayor of that city? My view is different. My view is that the mayor should be the champion, the advocate, the fighter for that city. The difference, Christian, between our city and the others you named is we're not simply a financial capital of our country. We're a cultural capital and we're the political capital of our country. That's why it's really important that the government gives more say to Londoners over how our city is run. Tokyo spends 70% of the monies uh, raised in Tokyo via taxes. New York spends 50%. London spends 7%. The mayor, 32 London boroughs, London should have more say over how, over, uh, how our city is run. Business rates coming to London is a good thing. Skills and FE coming to London is a good thing. Our population is currently 8.6 million. By 2020, it will be 9 million. By 2030, it will be 10 million. Growth per se is not bad. You've got to plan for that growth. I'm the only candidate who, as a minister, worked with business leaders uh, to make sure that business supports Crossrail 1. Many people don't realise this. Crossrail 1 is funded by taxation from central government. We all pay that. Taxation from London government. We all pay that. £4.3 billion via a business rate supplement paid by businesses in London. I took through the bill, the Business Rate Supplement Act, but also I was a Crossrail minister. That's shown the way how we can pay for major infrastructure projects. What about Crossrail 2? What about river crossings in the east of uh, London? What about extending the DLR, extending the tram, having a generation of new buses where the windows open and which are genuinely hybrid where the electric cells uh, work? We've got a plan for that growth. A mayor needs not simply experience, but also the vision to make sure the city can meet the needs of London in 2016, but also in 2046. Okay, we are going to get on to transport, I can assure you. It's a battleground uh, territory for you. Zach, Sadiq says that a, a Labour mayor uh, will have just as an effective relationship with the, with, the, with the Treasury and with the Chancellor and with the Whitehall levers of power as a Conservative mayor. Well, it's absolutely right that the mayor needs to be able to get a good deal from government, and it's absolutely right that 
that London needs more devolution. We have been infantilized by government for many years. Uh, unlike New York, which transfers about half of the taxes that it raises, in London we transfer 93%. We keep 7%. We need to go to the Chancellor cap in hand and beg for the money. We need to pay for our police and our transport and more besides. So getting a good deal from government is the point of the mayor. The mayor's job is to make the case for London with the Chancellor. Now, my record shows that that's what I do. That's how I increased my majority in the last election, by delivering for my constituents day in, day out. But you can't get a good deal from government if you're not willing even to talk to government. We had a threat to the police budget a few months ago. A billion-pound threat would have devastated, I believe, the Met's finances. I made the case to the Chancellor and the Home Secretary. I teamed up with Boris and various other MPs from London, Conservative MPs, and we won the argument. Sadiq Khan didn't even knock on the Chancellor's door, not even a letter. Uh, we had a, a housing bill. We have a housing bill going through Parliament at the moment. When it began life, it wasn't particularly good news for London. <coughs> I tabled amendments which improved it for London, made it a better bill for London. Now, I did that by working directly with government. How many times, Sadiq Khan, did you talk to the housing minister? How many times did you talk to the chancellor? How many times did you talk to anyone in government? I can answer that question for you. Not once. We have devolution of suburban rail franchises. One of the biggest game changers for people in Bromley and Bexley and Croydon and places like that will change the lives of tens of thousands of people. I made the case to the Chancellor. I spoke to the transport ministers. Sadiq Khan, you didn't even write them a letter. It's not about Labour Conservative. There are plenty of Labour people who will work cross-party to get a good deal. If it was a Labour government now, I fancy my chances of getting a good deal from them. I've always worked cross-party. But Sadiq Khan, you are a tribal politician and you have never worked outside of your party. So it, it, it's, it's very hard to imagine anything other than gridlock and bickering and blame for four years were you to be elected on May the 5th. Well, it, it, Zach is right. Zach was Thank the you. only man standing. That's very kind. Thank you. The, the only man standing, still supporting... The, the, the only man standing, still supporting George Osborne on the Friday after the budget. In fact, he was hidden in a porter cabin with George Osborne when there were disabled protesters outside protesting against the cruelest budget London has seen for a long, long time. You were there. If that's your definition of standing up for Londoners, then it's not the one that I subscribe to. If it was but the London's, cruelest budget London's, of all time, why didn't you vote against that measure? London's, why didn't you turn up to vote against London's, it? I, I did vote against the budget. You didn't vote uh, against the, the measure that, that you're London's, criticizing. The, the, history of, the history of London is in 2000, we elected an independent mayor at a time there was a Labour <coughs> government. In 2008, we elected a Conservative mayor at the time there was a Labour government. As a Labour minister, I worked with the then Tory mayor for the obvious reason, you don't cut your nose to spite your face. To give this government credit, it's given extra powers to Scotland. The last time I checked, Zach wasn't the first minister of Scotland. It was Nicola Sturgeon. To give this, this government some credit, they give more powers to the Welsh Assembly. The last time I checked, Zach wasn't uh, in Wales. To give this, this government some credit, They've given Greater Manchester more powers and says over the run of Greater Manchester. Zach also is not in uh, Manchester. This government's not stupid. This government recognises the importance to our country of London. That's why it's crucial uh, the government gives London more say over how, uh, how, over, how, uh, how, over how our city is run. I'm not saying we should get a bigger slice of the UK cake. My point is this, give us more say over our, how our city is run and the cake grows much, much uh, bigger. And look, I'll be the, the mayor after May the 5th, the Labour mayor campaigning with the Chancellor, the Prime Minister, the Business Secretary, and the Home Secretary for us to remain in the European Union. Not Zach Goldsmith. Okay, Jez. Um, 
on, uh, when one looks at your manifestos, um, I, I think it's fair to say that on certain pages, if one was to look at them blind, it would be quite difficult to tell whose was whose. I think one of you wants, in City Hall, a business advisory council. The other wants a, a council of business advisors. I think you're both in favour of uh, supporting the tech sector. You're both in favour of recognising the importance of infrastructure and housing. You both want to invest in skills. So what a lot of people might conclude is that on this point about who's going to be the best for London's economy and for the business environment, it might come down to character and it might come down to experience. So my question is, what experience do you have that will ensure your support and your stated support for the business environment will be most effective? Zach Goldsmith. Um, you're absolutely right. This, this election cannot be judged on the back of promises alone. We're three weeks away from an election. Promises are cheap. Politics is a world littered in broken promises. It's about the record. And, and it's, uh, it, it, I would encourage people to compare my record as an MP with that of Sadiq Khan. He wants to be the most pro-business mayor we've ever had, but he backed the most aggressively anti-business person ever to uh, threaten this country um, as a leader of opposition. Jeremy Corbyn, who described businesses as the real enemy, as strikes he described as the ultimate weapon. No, no one, I don't think, has asked him against whom. Uh, Sadiq was asked whether he regretted that. He said no, he would do it again. He's voted every single time against measures to reduce attacks on businesses in the, over the last six years. His first promise as a candidate was to bring in a special dedicated union unit to City Hall, a repaying, I guess, a favour for those people who backed his campaign. It is important you look at the record. My record as a working MP shows that I was elected against the odds uh, in a comfortable Lib Dem seat. Um, uh, I was two to one with the bookies, uh, e even worse odds than my odds at the moment. I was two to one with the bookies, and, the, uh, and I won against the odds. And over the course of the last five years, I've worked day in, day out for my constituents. I've delivered for them. I've secured funding for key projects in the area. I've held government to account on their behalf. And at the last election, I was returned with the biggest increased majority of any MP in the entire country. That doesn't happen by chance. That happens because people know, the people I've been working for know, that when I make a promise, I keep it. When I say I'm going to deliver, I deliver. I've been batting on their behalf consistently, and in politics, that matters. Sadiq Khan, your response. Thanks. Like Zach, I'm going to talk about myself. He's, and let me be clear about uh, what I think is important for uh, London. I think when it comes to choosing the mayor of London, uh, you're the mayor of the greatest city in the world, uh, leading global financial centre, uh, as you have said. You want to see the experience the candidates have, the values and the vision. I've got experience of running a successful business, uh, successful business in London. I've had the sleepless nights worrying about whether the overdraft will be extended, worrying about whether you'll uh, have enough money to pay the wages at the end of the month, worrying about whether you'll get the skilled staff to uh, recruit the challenges of expanding. I've been uh, a member of parliament who's actually been offered a job and accepted a job and had a job in government as a minister. Uh, being a minister, taking through a business rate supplement uh, uh, act, working with business leaders to get them on side so we understand the importance of the additional contribution businesses make towards Crossrail uh, One. Being the Minister for Fire, uh, the Mayor is in charge of the fire service here in uh, London. Being the Minister uh, who worked with a Tory Mayor in London, as a Labour politician, we can sometimes work together, to get the permit scheme through that gives the Mayor control over the digging up of our roads that cause huge problems in our city. A Minister with experience of faith and uh, race. Uh, concerns about there being problems uh, after the uh, recession, being the minister to make sure that it didn't bear fruit. I was the minister for transport attending cabinet in charge of Crossrail, in charge of cycling and in charge of uh, London. Now look, 
If you think that being a good backbench MP is enough to be the mayor of the greatest city in the world, there are many, 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 many other good backbench MPs who could qualify for this job, but who's got the experience? Who's got the values? Who's got the vision to make sure our city goes from strength to strength, but also addresses the challenges our city faces, fixing the housing crisis, making sure we have a modern and affordable transport system, making sure our city is healthier and safer, but also supporting businesses to grow and expand so more Londoners can bear the fruit of the jobs, growth and prosperity that businesses help create. Okay, Jens, thanks very much. We're going to move on to the last couple of questions from me before we bring the audience in. Um, you've both touched on the issue of housing. Um, <coughs> I hope now we can flesh out some of your plans and policies. A lot of business groups in particular, uh, the IOD and others, have talked about the effect that, that London's housing crisis has on its competitiveness, on its attractiveness. So, Zach Goldsmith, give us your plan to rectify the current London housing it, crisis. Thank you. It is a crisis. I mean, it's an overused term in politics, but we do have a housing crisis. We've reached a point now where you could be earning the average income, £34,500, have absolutely no prospect of getting on the housing ladder, either by qualifying for social housing or by buying a house on the open market. It is just <coughs> not possible. That is true even of people earning close to double the average London salary. The only long-term answer is to build more homes. My pledge is to build 50,000 homes a year. We haven't seen that since the 1930s. It's more or less double what we're building at the moment. And I'll do that through a number of ways, but principally by getting the government to agree to release publicly owned brownfield land. The government is the biggest landowner in this capital. Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Defence, National Health Service and more. In addition to land already controlled by the mayor. TfL land, if you squished it all together into one block, it would be the size of the borough of Camden. So releasing that land for development is the first step. The second step is to grow the transport network to unlock that land. If we don't grow the transport network, we don't unlock that land. And the choice is either not to build at all, which would be a disaster, or building over our precious green spaces, which is something I've ruled out in my action plan for Greater London. And as each and every development, each and every application crosses my desk as mayor, my job will be to assess it, to see how much fat there is in that application, in that proposal, and to extract that fat and ensure maximum possible affordability. And I'll do that by opening up the viability system to make it more transparent, easier for communities, local authorities, and indeed me, if I'm mayor, to understand. Now we, we, now we've had uh, a Conservative mayor for the last eight years and a Conservative Prime Minister for the last six. The IOD, CBI, FSB, Chamber of Commerce, London First, everyone you speak to say housing is now the number one issue facing London. Why should things be indifferent if Zach Goldsmith is the mayor of London? I have a plan to tackle the housing crisis. I will set up Homes for Londoners, which I'm in charge of, with local authorities, housing associations, developers, those with finance, including those in the city who currently are, are either buying buildings for their staff or contributing towards the graduate training scheme uh, so they can have guaranteed housing for uh, their staff. What it will do is bring together land, bring together finance to build the genuinely affordable homes Londoners need. I'm not going to promise to next year increase the number of homes being built from 23,000 last year to 50,000 next year, as Zach is promising to do. What I will do, though, is make sure the homes that are built are genuinely affordable. And my London plan will be quite clear. On public land, think of Hyde Park. Transport for London, the mayor, Londoners, own land equivalent to 16 times Hyde Park. Why don't we use some of that land to build genuinely affordable homes for Londoners? Not a fire cell, as has gone on for the last eight years. Keep the freehold 
so a revenue stream comes in, but make sure the homes that are built are genuinely affordable. On private land, my London plan will say the expectation is half of the homes should be genuinely affordable. And I don't mean 80% of market value, as Boris Johnson thinks, nor do I mean homes costing up to £450,000, as Zach Goldsmith thinks. You need an annual salary of £77,000 and a deposit of £98,000 to be able to afford one of those affordable homes. By genuinely affordable homes, I mean one of three things. Either homes where you pay a social rent, yes, council homes, Either, or, and or homes where you pay a London living rent. The experts say a London living rent should be a third of average local earnings. So if in Southwark, for example, the average local earnings in a month is £1,800, the London living rent will be £600, which means you can pay your rent and put, put aside money for a deposit for your own property. Is that available to everybody, the London, this new London living rent? Yeah. So capping rent? If, if you live in London. If you live in London... In those, in those homes we build, which are London living rents. So obviously, we'll take some time for them to come on stream, but the expectation is the homes will be either social rent, London living rent, or the third part, Christian, is homes which are part buy and part rent, shared ownership. We've modelled land, TFL land, from zones three to zone six. We think a shared ownership home could cost a deposit of, roughly speaking, between five and £6,000, and, and a monthly part, uh, a monthly rent... A mortgage of just under a thousand pounds and we will give first dibs to Londoners. So if you've been renting in London for five years or more you jump the queue for this shared ownership. If you've been renting in a borough uh, you get you jump the queue in relation to the London living rent uh, and the usual rules apply to social rent. The other part of the house we, we need market value properties. London needs luxury properties as well. That provides the revenue stream to local authority to build the genuinely affordable homes Londoners uh, need. Zach, there's a number of schemes outlined there. You care to respond? Yeah, I'll, I'll make a, a general point, is that there is, you know, the 50% uh, genuinely affordable target is a target that has been set a few times by Labour boroughs and by the former Labour mayor, Ken Livingston. But no one has ever met those targets for more than one year in a row. Uh, Ken set exactly the same target, got nowhere near it. Boris was elected without any targets at all and built more homes and more affordable homes than Ken Livingston did. Uh, the, the only model that Sadiq has... Uh, pointed to so far, at least the only one that I'm aware that he's pointed to, is a proposed 18-storey block in Camden, where half the homes will be social, it's on publicly owned land incidentally, half the homes will be genuinely affordable social homes and the other half have to pay for that. So you've got two bedroom flats going for £850,000. It is a very divisive policy. It locks out most Londoners. You either have to qualify for social housing, that means fighting your way onto a list that is already 360000 long, or you have to be absolutely loaded to be able to buy an £850,000 home. So this is not a a policy that is realistic. That is, this is a fantasy policy. And the irony is that the policy was announced by Sadiq in Hounslow, whose latest figures suggest that it has only delivered 9% genuinely affordable homes, only 2% if you actually take out stuff that Sadiq doesn't regard to be affordable. So it is a fantasy policy. I, if I could make another point about, rent, control, about rent controls. I mean, rent controls, even if they were desirable, they're not going to happen because the government has made it very clear they're not going to sanction rent controls across London. It's just not going to happen. But I don't think it is desirable. I had a meeting with Shelter, an organisation uh, that is on the very front line of campaigning for affordable housing across London. They don't even believe rent controls would work in London. They believe that it would cripple supply, that we'd see a decline in the number of homes being built, and they believe that unless you are already a renter, you would lose out. So this is, again, a fantasy policy. It's neither desirable nor is it deliverable. Well, I've not mentioned... Uh Rent controls. Well, that is effective. It's, it's not the first time Zach's made things up, but it probably won't be the last time. Still, 22 days to uh, 22 days <clears throat> to uh, go. But look, 
We've got to recognise the fact there is a housing crisis. I call it a Tory housing crisis because Zach may not have noticed we've had a Tory mayor for the last eight years and a Tory prime minister. Status quo won't solve the housing crisis. Now, I've spoken to chief executives of FTSE 100 companies. I've spoken to those in the city. They've got the finance because they, they worry about the inability to recruit and retain the staff. They've got staff members asking for transfers to Belfast to Leeds and other parts of the country, which is why we need genuinely affordable homes for Londoners, which is what my homes for Londoners uh, will do. But you know, the last year for which records are available, the Office for National Statistics said the largest number of Londoners aged between 30 and 39 left London. The largest number ever left London. That is a brain drain for uh, London, which is why we need homes for Londoners. We need genuinely affordable homes, but also, Christian, we need to look at the rental market. One in four Londoners now rents from a private landlord, which is, what, which is one of the reasons why I will have available uh, a, a not-for-profit letting agency covering all of London, uh, where... You're going to compete US, with existing letting well, agents? No, what, what, what we're going to do is this. There are some local authorities who have started doing this, and the idea is to try and reduce the, uh, the fees you pay to a letting agent. So at the moment you go to a letting agent, I'm not sure if you're renting, Christian, but your staff, I'm sure, are. You go to a letting agent, you pay three, four, five hundred pounds. By the way, the landlord pays as well. You get a tenancy for uh, 12 months. At the end of the 12 months, you're told to pay an increase <laughs> and pay another fee because letting agents make their property by flipping, make their money by flipping the, uh, the, the, the tenancy. I'll have a lot of profit letting agency across London. You as a tenant can come to me. You'll get a tenancy for up to three years. During the three years, the rent goes up by inflation. You'll pay a sensible uh, fee. A landlord could give us their property. Uh, we give them six months of rent uh, up front. Do all the checks that are currently required for a landlord to do, return the property in a good state, to try and stabilise uh, the rental market. That's a million miles away uh, from the policy that Zach is attributing to me. OK, nevertheless, you're both outlining what constitute fairly major interventions in the market itself, uh, in addition to some planning reforms. I know you both mentioned planning reform in, in your manifestos. And indeed, this government could be accused of, of complicating the um, demand side and not doing enough on the supply side. Um, Sadiq, you've not said how many homes you want to build per year. Zach, you've put a figure of 50,000 on, which is often cited as, as, the, as the figure that's required. Uh, you also mentioned shelter. Now, shelter, you know a thing or two about housing in the capital, are very clear that if you want to come close, if either of you want to come close to building 50,000 homes a year, you have to, in their words, think the unthinkable and start thinking about what you can do on the 70,000 acres of London's green belt land. They said it's simply not feasible that you would be able to build anything like 50,000 homes without doing so. So is it not the case that given that restriction and the geographic and physical restriction, all you're left with are, are interventions, whether it's rent caps or whether it's, Zach, I think you've got something called the, the mayor's mortgage, perhaps you could explain that. Um, a shelter wrong to say that you need to start looking at the so-called green belt around London? Zach? Um, I think they are wrong. Um, we, I mean, there are all kinds of assumptions that, that, or, um, that they're making in order to reach that conclusion. And one assumption is that we're not going to get access to the brownfield land that is owned by the public sector. If we do, and I accept if the government decides it's not going to release that land, it'll be very difficult. So it does require a mayor who can do a deal with government. But there is more than enough brownfield land. But there's another area as well, and that is the, the, the requirement upon us to redevelop existing 1950s and 1960s estates. There are three and a half thousand, some of them small, some 
farms and large across Greater London, many of them coming to the end of their life. These are, are tower blocks uh, which are dilapidated and they about, had about as much repair as they can put up with and they need to be regenerated. According to Savills, who put out a report on this issue just a few weeks ago, the potential to redevelop them, to remove those towers, replace them with street-based, low-rise but high-density alternatives, uh, uh, which are uh, uh, more traditional and, and, and on the whole tend to be much more popular, to do so with guarantees for existing tenants that no one's going to be moved off, uh, that it won't happen without their approval, and that no one will be put onto a rental stream that is higher than the one that they left. With those three guarantees, they believe that we can increase the number of homes uh, by 78%, and that is hundreds of thousands of new homes. It's a massive opportunity not only to increase the number of homes in London, but to improve the conditions in which many people are living and to uh, make London a more livable city. So we have a massive opportunity. We don't need to go down the green belt route, and I've ruled that out in my manifesto. I hesitate to put you both on the same side of an argument, but Sadiq, do you stand with Zach on this? You won't <clears throat> look at building on the green belt? No, we shouldn't build on the uh, uh, green belt. Uh, London First did, did some work, and they calculated you could build a million pounds, uh, a million pounds, uh, a million houses uh, without building on the uh, uh, green belt. Brownfield, uh, public land, uh, other land that we can build on. You know, if we doubled the density of homes in London, good quality, high density homes, we still have less density than Paris. But also, this is why you need a mayor to, to have the experience, who's got the experience to build the right infrastructure in London. It's a very unpopular thing to say in West London, but the, the centre of our city is moving eastwards, uh, which is why you need river crossings in the east of London. In 2007, there were plans for the DLR to be extended to Barking, Barking side. Uh, Boris Johnson cancelled those plans in 2008. Had that happened, we'd have had tens of thousands of new homes in Barking. The good news is the government's now agreed to extend London Overground eight years later, which means we can build homes in Barking and the east of uh, London. Uh, I'm in favour of a new runway at Gatwick Airport. Uh, Croydon say they could build tens of thousands of homes in Croydon. Uh, Merton are optimistic as well, and other, other boroughs in South London, by improved infrastructure in the south of uh, uh, London. If we had uh, overground trains, DLR extensions, uh, Crossrail uh, to the potential for building more homes is huge. There is no need to go anywhere near the Greenbelt. Okay, gents, thanks. Um, I want to just come on to transport, um, a key battleground um, between the two of you before we bring the audience in. And when I do bring the audience in, you can ask any question you like, um, and I hope that you might pick up on some of the issues we've discussed as well as uh, introduce a few new topics. Um, I could talk about aviation capacity. I could ask you about the conflict between Uber and the black cabs. I'm sure that will come up in conversation. We don't have much time, so I want to just get down to this issue of fares, which you have made a, a key fight. Um, Sadiq Khan, you want to freeze fares for four years. And the figure that has been attributed to the cost of that is £1.9 billion. And I know that you've got schemes that you say are going to make up that shortfall. Do you accept the figure is £1.9 billion? No. The, 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 the figure that, that I accept for uh, uh, the fully funded fares freeze for four years is £452 million. Now, uh, Transport for London is good, but it's flabby. Roughly speaking, TfL's budget is £12 billion a year. I can't think of many businesses, think of your own newspaper, I can't think of many public authorities that have not gone through huge changes for the better, some for the worse, over the last six, seven, eight years. TfL has, is inefficient and needs huge, huge improvement. Let me give you some examples of how we can make TfL efficient, uh, remove waste, and have a fares freeze over the next uh, four years. Oh, by the way, the £1.9 billion figure assumes a number of things. It assumes uh, inflation rates higher than the Bank of England. It assumes a five-year 
business plan and also assumes fares going up by more than 17% over the last four years. Over the last eight years, they've gone up by more than 50%. Some Londoners pay more than 3,500 now than they were eight years ago. Uh, they're the most expensive in all of Europe. After housing, the biggest expense Londoners face is transport, which is why I'll have a fully funded fare series over the next four years. Let me give you some examples of how we can make savings in transport for uh, London. I asked an FOI. Uh, in the last eight years, the amount of money TfL spends on agency staff has doubled. Last year, they spent £383 million on consultants and agency staff, and cut that by at least uh, half. Uh, TfL has an engineering department that deals with the underground and a separate engineering department that deals with surface trains. Why not merge the two? Save huge money in back office costs, but also improve uh, procurement. Last year, TfL lost £61 million in uh, fare evasion, 61 million. Imagine any other business allowing that much money to be lost by uh, evasion and by uh, uh, fraud. You know, uh, when I think about Transport for London's land, they own 16 times Hyde Park, the equivalent of. Hong Kong's Transport Authority raises more money through clever use of property uh, than by fares. Why isn't TfL been more efficient in, in its uh, land? You know our buses in London? There are 18 separate franchises for our buses in London. 40% of the companies that run the buses in London, 40%, the companies are owned by the governments of France, Germany, and Holland. So the fares we pay on the buses in London go towards reducing the fares, guess where? France, Germany, and Holland. Why isn't TfL bidding for some of these uh, contracts in the buses? Why isn't TfL bidding for contracts in cities around uh, the UK or cities around the world? I think TfL is good, uh, but there's a lot of waste there. A lot of uh, efficiency savings to be made, and also a diversity of uh, revenue streams. I want TfL to be fit for purpose. I'm the only candidate with the experience of being a transport uh, minister, making tough uh, decisions, and I, I, I will keep my promise, of, uh, which, which I've made, which is you will pay not a penny more in 2020 to what you pay now, and it will have no impact on investment going forward. Words that the TfL Commissioner Mike Brown agrees with. Will it have an impact on council tax? No. So you, no. Have no, you will not raise council tax? I want to keep council tax, council tax as low as possible. The only circumstances I can foresee having to raise council tax, I want to keep it as low as possible, is if George Osborne in the future makes any further cuts to our police officers. As okay. you know, the mayor can only raise council tax by 2%. So in that circumstance where you know, Zach's friend George cuts our police budget and London security is at risk, I may consider the future, it's a hypothetical, uh, raising it at the maximum, you can do it by 2%, but there is no okay. plans uh, to raise uh, council tax. I want to keep council tax as low as possible. Thank you. Uh, Zach, a four-year fare freeze is an attractive proposition, is it not? Um, I, I'm three weeks and two days away from trying to persuade more than half of London's voters to back me with their first or second preference. There is nothing I would like more than to promise all kinds of free things or cheaper things because I would like them to give me a green light and back me. However, there is not a transport expert in London, including transport experts in the Labour Party, who believe you can take £1.9 billion out of the TfL budget and continue to grow the network. And that figure is not my figure. It doesn't come from my campaign. It is a TfL figure. The current commissioner, the previous commissioner, Peter Hendy, have both used the figure of £1.9 And that figure is based on assessments provided by the Office of Budget Respons Budgetary Responsibility. This is a figure that is not questioned by anyone other than Sadiq Khan. £1.9 billion taken out of that budget. That means not going ahead with the vital improvements we know London needs in order to keep moving, in order to accommodate a growing population. Until a few weeks ago, Sadiq Khan was asked, how are you going to save that money? 
He talked about cancelling the cable car. Well, that would cost £20 million to do. He talked about cancelling an order for buses, an order which had already gone through and which would also cost money to do. Then he began talking about sweating the assets, the kind of thing you say if you're a politician when you have no idea what you're talking about, the kind of thing David Brent says in the office in almost every series. And now, finally, we have a few other examples uh, which, which I'm, I have no doubt are as flimsy as the former ones. And that is why Sadiq Khan has given himself a blank check on council tax. It's why he says that he reserves the right to up council tax because he's going to have to find extreme ways of paying for that £1.9 billion black hole. And I'll make one final point. If you, even if I were elected on May the 5th and managed to protect London against that £1.9 billion black hole, let's say I'm able to do that and protect the existing budget, I still wouldn't have what I need in order to grow transport, uh, the transport network sufficiently. I would still have to go to the Chancellor and negotiate more powers. We're not going to get a blank check. That's not going to happen. But we will need more powers. I took the Chancellor a few weeks ago to Sutton to talk to local businesses about the Sutton tram link, which will cost around £200 million. And I put it to him, as local businesses did, that we need a new settlement, a new deal, whereby new homes built on the back of Transport for London investments, that the stamp duty on those new homes is held within London. That would enable us to pay at least half of the project. It would enable Transport for London to be so much more ambitious, so much more bullish with the expansion we know London needs just to cope with rising demand and just to unlock that land we're going to need Thank to you. solve the housing crisis. Thank you. Yeah, Sadiq, I'll give you 60 sim seconds sim to sim respond sim to the charge sim that you're the sim David Brent of Transport sim Policy. Sim simple question to Zach, who, who could answer this in a straightforward yes or no manner. Do you accept that the £1.9 billion figure assumes an increase in fares of 17%? No, that's a back of the fag packet stuff. No, so, so you, the, you the disagree 1. with TFL's... The 1.9 is back of the fag packet stuff. This, this based, just, this just the the 1.9 billion is based on assessments provided by the Office this, of Budgetary Responsibility this, this and, shows, despite what you said earlier, the Bank shows, of England. This shows why it doesn't work, Christian, because basically the assumption upon which the entire uh, ZAC attack uh, campaign is based, right, is based upon a TFL calculation based upon a five-year business plan, not four, based upon inflation being higher than the Bank of England and based upon an increase in fares of 70%. I don't accept that. I think TFL needs to make sure it's providing value for money and it's far more efficient than it has been. It's not good enough for TFL to give a plan to a part-time mayor who accepts it, which is why we need to have a full-time mayor with the experience and the political will to make sure we freeze fares over the next four years without jeopardising the investment uh, in infrastructure investment for the future. Gents, we're going to bring the audience in at this point. Um, there are people around with microphones. If I call on you to ask a question, I'm told that the microphones will pick it up better if you stand up. Um, to ask your question, but we won't be accepting speeches or observations from the floor. Um, and do please think of questions to ask, um, which I can pose to both candidates. So, could we please take the first question? And I can see uh, there is a lady down here um, with her hand up in the fourth row. Just wait for the microphone for a moment, please. It's okay. Thank you. What do you think the single most pressing issue is for London's small business owners, and what are you going to do about it? Zach Goldsmith. Thank you very much. Um, I think everything we've talked about so far will have relevance for small business, infrastructure, housing, transport, uh, digital connections, broadband for London. All these things are important for small business, but there are two things which I think will help things even further. The first is the devolution of business rates. When we have control of business rates shared between the mayor and local authority, we don't know what the balance will yet be, but we know it'll be full devolution. That creates an opportunity to make London an even more business-friendly environment, and it'll change the dynamic between the local authority 
authority in businesses. Today, businesses can't vote. There are plenty of local authorities in London that take a very hostile approach to businesses, big and small, uh, because they don't see a direct advantage. When local authorities become absolutely dependent on the revenue provided by businesses, that will change the relationship. And I believe that we'll see that London will become a much more business-friendly environment than it is today. That's one of the most exciting things that is going to happen over the next four years. But there's another issue as well, and this is true right across London, particularly central, but it's right across London, and that is that we have a real shortage of office space, that people are being priced out of offices, particularly small and medium-sized businesses. That is a consequence of two things, rising prices, but also, uh, I think, clumsy legislation, legislation allowing people to convert office to residential without having to go through the normal planning route. This is something that I've opposed consistently in Parliament, I'll continue to oppose. In my own borough of Richmond, we've lost one-third of our offices in the last uh, 18 months, and that is a trend that cannot be allowed to continue. So I will challenge that legislation, and I will ensure that all new major developments, office, uh, commercial developments, include office space for startups and small businesses, and we'll make, I will make much better use of existing space in our uh, TFL network, some of the most valuable retail space of all. I would say those are the two single biggest things that will make a difference. Sadiq. Thanks for your question. If you, if you speak to uh, small businesses and the FSB in particular, the biggest issue they're worried about is business space. The inability of a small business, an independent trader, to get a, a lease on a property because a franchise is coming in and the landlord goes with a franchise rather than the uh, independent trader and the small uh, business. So we need to stop what's called permitted development. This is where uh, the government uh, has allowed a situation where uh, landowners not unreasonably allow their property to be changed from uh, business to residential because it's worth much, much more. So the London plan that we're planning to have will protect the heritage of parts of London and protect independent traders as well and protect business space. So keep the business space we've got, unless there's a very, very uh, good reason. But also the London plan, we should be building in new business space, uh, space for startups. Think about when it comes to new construction, live work uh, spaces. But it's not simply business in the traditional sense of the word. What about art studios? Uh, what about music venues when it comes to small uh, businesses since 2008? we've lost uh, more than a third of live music venues in London. So my point is, and Christian made a point, an observation earlier on, that we're talking about interfering with the market. Yeah, I am, because actually the market's not working. Uh, survival of the fittest is leading to small businesses struggling, music venues closing down, which is why the London plan needs to protect the heritage and protect small businesses as well. Thank you. Next question, please. There's a gentleman with his arm up there in the blue shirt. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan Freud here. As a student, I fear that education is one issue which is not being dealt with properly in the manifestos. Could you suggest how you would deal with the, the small funding that will be lost as predicted by the TUC in different boroughs in London as the new government funding formula comes into effect? And furthermore, how do you suggest real policies, not just the ambiguity as suggested in the manifestos, with regards to anti-gang youth engagement policies. Thank you very much. Okay, two questions there, Zach. I'll come to you first. The first being on the, on the funding for education, yeah. and then um, if you could also, um, some thoughts on uh, gang culture, gang crime in London. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. 
Um, you're right, there isn't a lot of emphasis in any mayoral candidate's manifesto on, on education uh, because there are limits to what the mayor can do. I've been very clear in my manifesto about what I can guarantee to do and what I hope to do. That the mayor doesn't set the curriculum, the mayor doesn't set school funding. What the mayor can do and must do is ensure that as we build those new homes, as we release publicly owned land, we ensure that spaces are made available for new schools, for school places. Uh, and that is something that if the mayor doesn't do, will lead to a serious school places crisis. That's something that must be written right into the uh, London plan. The second thing, which is a huge opportunity, we've talked about it briefly in another context, is devolution of skills funding, around 400 million pounds. That gives us the opportunity to be so much more innovative than we have been so far. And it won't just be about paying for skills funding through conventional colleges. We can be much more dynamic than that. We can uh, team up with organizations, for example, like the Makers Academy, which takes young kids with no real qualifications, but who are digitally very fluent, and enable them to be prepared to take advantage of the extraordinary things we're seeing in Tech City uh, and, and emerging tech clusters in places like Croydon, uh, an, an industry which didn't even exist, a sector that didn't exist uh, 10 years ago. If you'd had Ken Livingston here 15 years ago, this is not a political point, and you'd asked him what is the next big story in London, he wouldn't have said fintech. It didn't exist. He wouldn't probably even have said tech, and yet we now have this extraordinary world of opportunity. And if we have control over our skill funding, we'll be able to ensure that young people are prepared for the jobs that actually exist. Now, gangs, are you happy for me to continue? Yeah, gangs. Gangs, I mean, it's such a huge issue, but it's also a massive issue, a hugely important issue. Um, we need to do a number of things. We need to ensure the police have the resources and the tools they need to keep us safe. That's about police numbers. I've committed to keeping numbers at 32,000 minimum. Uh, the tools, like intelligence-led stop and search, uh, are absolutely essential. Um, they need to have the backing of the mayor. They need to know the mayor's on their side. Uh, we need to take a tougher approach to those people who are hardened offenders, who are uh, out of, out, uh, beyond the reach of, of reform, the gang leaders. We need to ensure that magistrates have the power to fit GPS tags so that we know if they break the terms of their bail or terms of their release. That's something, a tool that the police are asking for. We need to ensure that people who commit crimes twice in a row, two strikes in a row, Enfield law needs to be properly implemented. It is not being implemented at the moment. But most importantly of all, we need to invest in steering kids away from crime. One of the most exciting things I've experienced during the course of this campaign is talking to small organizations throughout Greater London who, on tiny budgets, are steering hundreds of kids away from making the wrong decision. QPR, for example, Queen's Park Rangers, have a, a QPR in the community, a Q, QPR in the community program, which identifies kids most at risk of exclusion, um, and it mentors them. And the last batch of kids they took under their wing, not one of them was excluded, not one. And every single one of them exceeded their peers in terms of GCSEs. That's just one example. You've got the St. Giles Trust. You've got the Godwin Lawson Foundation. And one of the things I'm most excited about being able to do if I'm elected on May the 5th is giving life, giving oxygen, giving support and funding to those people, those organizations who are saving lives and making London a better place. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, so you, you asked two questions. The first one, you know, is Zach Ducks. The first question was this. What are we going to do about the government changing the funding formula, which will have a huge impact on London's schools? If we were speaking here in 2001, we'd be saying the schools in London are some of the worst in the country. And they were. The government of the time uh, and, the and, the, and the mayor introduced something called the City Challenge Partnership. That was investing in young people in our schools, something that Ian Duncan Smith passionately believes in. It's what, we used to, what, what Tony Blair used to call tough on the causes of crime. 
invest in young people, and those very same schools 10 years later are some of the best in the country. Uh, and this is why it's so important that we understand that you can't have as a mayor of London somebody who will accept changes in the funding formula leading to money being taken away from London to other parts of the uh, country maybe, or elsewhere. Uh, there's still a £4.4 billion deficit in the budget that we've just, uh, just spoken through. And so it's a big problem. It's a big problem for those who worry about Londoners having the skills for tomorrow's uh, jobs. So as the mayor of London, I'll be trying to persuade the London, uh, try, trying to persuade the government to do the right thing by London, speaking to Nicky Morgan, speaking to the Chancellor and the government, explaining why it's wrong to take its money away from London's schools who need it so uh, desperately. One of the things that I want to do is actually get more and more young people looking at the STEM subjects. Uh, and that's really important we do so. I'm passionate about getting school-aged children girls into coding, for example, into programming, into website design, so they can be applying for the jobs of uh, tomorrow. I want today's employers, chief executives, those who work in the city, those who are startups, to go into assemblies in schools to infuse, encourage, and inspire those young people to be thinking about careers in those areas uh, that's so crucial. I want to set up a skills for Londoners. The next mayor will be in charge of further education and will be in charge of the skills agenda. Skills for Londoners will work with today's employers in a partnership and the voluntary sector and the FE colleges to inspire today's youngsters to, to think about the jobs that are in London, but also to have the skills and to be equipped to get those jobs uh, as well. It's so, so uh, crucial. On your second question, uh, by the way, the other thing we're going to do in relation to school, schools is school places. You speak to any parent in London, the most stressful time of the year is March and April, waiting to see whether young Johnny or young Ali got into their local state school. I think the mayor should have a role in relation to schools planning, a forum of councils, uh, uh, schools, local communities, persuading the DfE to open the schools in the places in London where we need uh, the schools rather than the places where the most articulate uh, parents. The second question is, is obviously really important at a time when knife crime is going up, uh, I'm afraid, and violent crime is going up uh, as well. Prevention is far, far, far better uh, than dealing with the causes, and I'll come to that in a second. Every time a young person leaves home with a knife, that's a failure, which is why making sure in our schools, in our youth centres, in places of worship, we're, we're teaching our youngsters the importance of resilience. They're resilient, so they're not, in, they're not thinking about taking out a knife uh, for self-defense or for respect. And they have a sense of belonging in their family, in their community, in their faith, which means they don't join a gang. Uh, they aren't indoctrinated, radicalized, and uh, groomed. And that's why we've got to invest in youth services. So for example, you know, we currently have sitting in storage uh, water cannons that cost, roughly speaking, a quarter of a million pounds. He wants to keep them and use them if we need to. I want to sell them and use the money for youth services in uh, London. But also, all the evidence is that neighborhood policing, where young people and others have confidence in the local police service, what used to be called safer neighborhood teams, that leads to uh, policing by consent, meaning what it says in the tin, where we as the public come forward and report intelligence. The safer neighborhood team knows who potential troublemakers are, people about to get into trouble, and that leads to all of us being safer. I'm afraid neighbourhood policing is being lost in London. As the mayor in charge of policing, I'd make sure it stays. Thank you.
Uh, two very good and not unrelated questions there. Um, I can see that there is a question just, uh, on the, just on the side of the door through which the candidate has entered. There's a gentleman there with his hand up. Hello, Connor Sullivan. Uh, hello, Connor Sullivan from the Financial Times. Zach Goldsmith, I'd like to invite you to discuss one of the claims in detail that you made about Sadiq Khan and um, how it questions his... Uh, judgment and suitability to, to become mayor. You and Theresa May have said that Sadiq Khan's support for Babar, Babar Ahmed, who is a Londoner who ended up in Guantanamo Bay, that Sadiq Khan's support for him disqualifies him for office. Who is Babar Ahmed and why does Sadiq Khan's support for him uh, disqualify him to be mayor? And I'd also like to ask Sadiq to uh, respond. Zach, Babar Ahmed. I'm really sorry, but I, couldn't I, I didn't hear the actual question there. Did you hear he was asking you who Baba Ahmed is and why okay. you were concerned, along with the Home Secretary, Theresa May, about yeah, this was something an alleged that, association with him. Yeah, this is something the Home Secretary um, spoke about a week ago, of one among many, many other examples and points of concern that she raised. Baba Ahmed is a man who was accused of creating an, uh, um, an online uh, um, uh, facility designed to help um, recruit uh, pe help people engage with the, uh, the Taliban. Um, it, it was a fundraising vehicle as well. And I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this, but I know that these are the points that were accepted by the courts. It became a fundraising vehicle as well. Um, he was finally extradited to the States where he, was, where he pleaded guilty to having uh, engaged in uh, indirect secondary uh, terrorist activities. He was jailed and he returned very recently to the UK. I hope that answers your question. I think the question is also whether you were alleging any kind of oh, link or well, relationship between yeah, sorry, Mr. Ahmed yeah. and, and Sadiq Khan. I, the, the record, I mean, Sadiq can, can answer that as well if he chooses to, but that, Babar Ahmed was supported throughout that time by Sadiq Khan, first as a friend and later on as, and so before Sadiq became an MP, and second as a, an MP, as a constituency MP. Um, in, 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 and was, had many discussions and meetings and so on with him and campaigned very actively for him outside of Parliament too. Um, I hope that answers your question. Sadiq Khan. I've got it to you. I'm, I'm just uh, amazed at the selective amnesia of Zach Goldsmith. Zach also campaigned to stop Barbara Ahmed being extradited to the United <coughs> States of America on the UK-US extradition <coughs> treaty, as did somebody called Boris Johnson uh, also. And I've never <coughs> hidden from the fact that I was chair of Liberty, I've never hidden from the fact that I was a human rights lawyer, nor that I knew uh, Barbara Ahmed, nor that I was his uh, MP. It is a fact that once he was extradited to the United States of America, he uh, pleaded guilty. The point that I was making, and at the time Zach was making, and Boris Johnson was making, is that the US-UK extradition treaty was unfair. And there was a campaign supported by the Daily Telegraph and many others expressing concern about the one-sidedness of the treaty. Now, I'm surprised that Zach's got amnesia. We'll put on our website details of where he's campaigned for him. Oh, can I answer that, please? You may. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just complete and utter nonsense, that. There, I, I, I have been a critic of our extradition arrangements. That is correct. I've been a critic of the European arrest warrant. The first uh, a complex surgery I dealt with as a new MP was a person whose life has been ruined by the European arrest warrant. Um, to, uh, and I have taken part in debates in Parliament on these issues, where I have championed the cause of my constituent. I've championed the cause of a young man called Gary McKinnon. You'll remember uh, he was, uh, his, face, his, uh, his case was very famous. Uh, but to say that because I campaigned 
for those, for my constituent and for Gary McKinnon, both of whose cases I felt were entirely unjust, to suggest that that means that I was campaigning on behalf of Barbara Ahmed, who I'd never heard of until uh, quite recently, I think is an extraordinary thing to say. And Boris Johnson, I have no idea, but I very much doubt that he'd have been campaigning for someone like Barbara Ahmed, a convicted uh, a terrorist, someone who, by his own admission, it got engaged with the worst forms of terrorism. I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing to say. So the exact says that his support is not good the same. There are very good journalists here, and they'll do their homework. Yeah, please do. Okay. Yeah. Let's take another question. Yeah, I can see there is a gentleman with a what looks like a blue shirt and white collar on down here at the front. Uh, are you passing them up? All right, no, no. Can we, have, can we put the... I saw the hand go up first. There's several rows down. Um, I'll tell you what, you, know, you say, yeah, go ahead, ask your question, and we'll come down to the front afterwards. Since this is a job interview, what is your greatest leadership quality, and what quality do you most admire in your opponent? <laughs> Thank you. Gentlemen, I'm sure you're both keen to make this a short answer. Sadiq Khan, your leadership qualities and what do you admire in, in, in your opponent? Can, can I talk about Zach first? Uh, and the, the Zach I knew before he became the candidate. Uh, the, the, the quality I admire most in Zach is he's charming. He's personable. Uh, and I've always found him good company. Uh, I'm sorry that he's allowed those running his campaign to lock away the real Zach Goldsmith and put forward this person who I don't recognise and don't know. Uh, as far as I'm concerned... I, I think, look, uh, to be the mayor of London, you need experience. It's really important to have experience. Look, some people think the job of the mayor is to cut a ribbon, walk the red carpet, and make a few jokes. I can do that, by the way. But I think it's about, about having the experience, the values, and the vision to understand the challenges we face, but also the potential of our great city. And I never, I never run away, as you'll appreciate, uh, from talking about my background. And that's because this is a city where someone like me can have their potential fulfilled. That's always been the London story. You work hard, you get a helping hand, you can achieve anything. My worry is too many Londoners today are working hard, but there's no helping hand. I want to be the helping hand. Zach Goldsmith. Thank you very much. Um, I, um, I suppose, um, I think one of the most important things in politics is not just being able to make brash promises, but being believed. Uh, the, the, the collective share price of politicians is at an all-time low. That's because people don't believe what politicians say. I would point to my record and show that I made a lot of promises to my constituents before they became my constituents in 2010 and that I kept those promises. Uh, and I did that by holding government to account where appropriate, where necessary, by securing a good deal from government and being able to broker deals, all qualities which are necessary, I believe, for securing the best deal for London. And I do believe that the top role, the principal job of the mayor, is to ensure that we get the best possible deal from government, because we depend on government. Um, Sadiq, um, I'm so tempted to answer the point you made, but I won't. I will simply say that Sadiq has a quality which is uh, admirable, and that is that he is... Um, he is, very, uh, he is very tough. He's a grit. I've come I'm a bit stuck there. He's, he's, he's a gritty campaigner. A gritty, which is a useful thing as well in politics. Right. I'm going to take one more question from the audience. And I'm going to go to, to the gentleman in the glasses with the hand in the air and a white collar blue shirt down here, four or five rows back, <coughs> who I denied last time. And then after this, I'm afraid we're going to go to closing statements. Thank you very much. Um, so I will take a chance to ask a few more questions then. Um, two on transport and two on housing. No, I'm afraid we'll take four. one question. It will be very short. Four. All right. Four. Pick <laughs> your best question and ask it now. I like his ambition though, Christian. <laughs> yeah. 
He could be a journalist. Okay. You're so, a Londoner, quite clearly. <laughs> so it's related to the TFL fare. So I arrived in the country in 2009, and the bus fare had rise from £1 to £1.50. That's a 50% increase. And if you're looking at different things, it increased by around 20% to 50% in the last six years. So obviously, even if we pay so much increase, um, we have managed to have a lot of two strikes, which a lot of us has experienced in here, which we don't understand why we pay such high fares, and yet you, there are two strikes going on. Um, what sort of policy will you guys be suggesting to stop two strikes from happening okay. in the future? Strikes, something which have ruined all of our commutes uh, one stage or another. We'll take a quick uh, answer from each of the candidates on how they're going to clamp down on the number of strikes. Um, Sadiq Khan. Well, you're right, fares have gone through the roof in the last eight years. They've increased by more than 50%. We pay the most expensive fares in all of Europe and some of the most expensive in the world. It doesn't need to be this way. And we've got a plan to freeze them over the next uh, four years. I asked an FOI of City Hall. I said, in the last eight years, how many strikes have there been? And then how many strikes were there in the, in the eight years before then? There have been 35 days lost due to strikes in the last eight years. And there were 16 days of strike lost in the eight years before. So they've more than doubled in the last eight years. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because the Mayor of London has refused to meet those who represent our tube workers. I asked another FOI. I said, how many times in the last two years has Boris met Joanna Lumley? She's got an idea about a garden bridge. He's met her three times in the last two years. So he's got time to meet Joanna Lumley, but no time to meet uh, those who represent our tube workers. And my point is this, look. You can't in any business, whether you're the editor of a newspaper, whether you're a chief executive or a company, whether you're the mayor of London, unilaterally change somebody's terms and conditions. Yes, there's always a time to uh, bring about changes in the work regime. I'm going to do it in TfL when I become the mayor of London because, like I said, they're good, but they are flabby. Uh, but you've got to sit down and talk to those who work for you to make sure you come to an amicable resolution to the differences uh, you might have. Zach Goldsmith, clamping down on the number of strikes. Yeah, first of all, it is, it is correct to say that there have been more strikes under Boris than there were under Ken. The, the principal reason for that is that Ken agreed to everything the unions demanded, um, and Boris took, took a line. Um, it, it, the, the truth is that we are in a situation today where a very tiny minority of people in London can hold the whole of London to ransom for political reasons. Um, and the mayor does need support from government. And the government is passing legislation at the moment, which I very strongly support, which Sadiq opposes, which means that it doesn't mean that uh, strikes will be banned. But what it does mean is that where strikes happen, they can only happen with a, high, a, a genuine threshold of democratic support among members. And for TfL, I lobbied Sajid Javid to ensure that Transport for London would be classified as an essential service, meaning the threshold would have to be higher still. Uh, TfL is providing an essential service for anyone who depends upon it. That legislation is going through, and that will make the job of the next mayor much easier. And the truth is there are tough decisions to be made. London's security issues are a serious concern. Anxiety levels have gone through the roof, not least because of what's happened in Paris and Brussels. I've pledged to put 500 new police on our tube system. And that is something that I think is non-negotiable. It must happen, but there is no money within the Met to pay for that. Uh, these are British transport police, and they will need to be paid for by TfL. One of the ways we could pay for that immediately is by rethinking the, the uh, travel perk enjoyed by union members, enabling them not just to have free travel, which is fine, but to gift free travel to anyone they know, even if they're not related to them, a scheme which most people aren't even aware of but costs tens of millions of pounds every year. Those kinds of negotiations do need to happen, but they will only happen 
with the support of the legislation that is currently going through Parliament. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you also for your contributions. That brings us to the end of tonight's debate. I do hope that you have found it illuminating. The stakes are high, even if the debate sinks a little low from time to time. Um, <laughs> but I think between now and polling day, uh, you'll have plenty more opportunities to grill the candidates, to watch them be grilled, and to figure out a little more of the detail behind the policies and the promises they've made tonight. So it brings us now to our closing statements. It's 60 seconds. Gentlemen, I'm going to put my hand up when you have 10 seconds remaining, and I'm going to invite Zach Goldsmith to go first with your closing statement. Thank you very much indeed. London is the greatest city on earth. Uh, we are back on the map as the most important city in the world. Boris Johnson can take much of the credit for that. But there are challenges, real challenges, around affordability, around the fact that people who work here cannot afford to live here. My action plan will deliver more homes to close the gap between demand and supply to help Londoners earning average incomes to get the keys to their first home. Better transport, not just to keep London moving, but to enable London to continue growing. Safer streets, that means giving the police the tools and the resources, and even more importantly, the backing they need to keep us safe. And I will make London the greenest and cleanest city in the world. But three weeks out from an election, promises are cheap. You could have any one of the candidates here today and they make you promises. But what matters in this election is who can deliver. And I will deliver without putting a penny on council tax. I will deliver by working closely with this government, the government on which London fundamentally depends. And that approach defines who I have been as an MP, which is why I got a big mandate, a big green light, a thumbs up from the people of my Thank constituency you, who know me best. I'll do the same for London. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Sadiq Khan. Well, firstly, thank you all for coming, and thank you to City AM. I want to bring opportunity uh, back to London, making sure that every Londoner has a secure and affordable home, freezing transport fares while delivering the infrastructure of the future by squeezing the inefficiency out of TfL, supporting businesses to create jobs while skilling up today's Londoners for the jobs of tomorrow making our city safer and more secure. With the government in chaos, London needs a mayor with the right experience. A mayor with a positive vision for a city in which opportunity is restored. The potential of our entrepreneurs and innovators unleashed and the sky the limit of our optimism. I will be that mayor, a mayor for all Londoners. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. The Institute of Directors, I believe, have laid on some drinks for you all, so you're welcome to stay and you can discuss what you've heard. Thank you very much for joining us and good night. For debate and analysis, listen to CTAM Unregulated every Friday. Hey everyone, this is Sharon Waxman. I'm the founder and the editor-in-chief of The Wrap, the premier news source for daily coverage of the entertainment industry. I'm also your host of this new podcast, The Wrap Up, a show that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. Each week, we'll bring you the latest news on the business of movies, TV, streaming, and tech. So be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you each week on The Wrap Up.